Acts chapter 5 verse 29 to verse 32, I believe is one of the best examples of Christian apologetics that's found in the New Testament scriptures. Uh, the Christian's apologetics is how you learn how to defend the Christian faith. And I think today in measure we've forgotten how to do that. Here we have Peter, I read before the Jewish Sanhedrin, that's the council that was at Jerusalem, to answer for preaching the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 17, they had already threatened and forbidden uh, the apostles to preach any more concerning the risen, the risen Saviour. Because they had filled, the Bible says, all of Jerusalem with their doctrine. They had been told not to do it, but you know, you have to obey God rather than men. And so they continued to do it, and they made mention of his name. And the, the brave answer of the apostles to these religious accusers, I think it's a marker for the church in all ages. Chapter 4, verse 20, we read, they said, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They likewise prayed for the Holy Ghost to proclaim the word. And we read in verse 29 that they cried unto the Lord, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and spake the word of God with boldness. Not with brazenness. There's a, there's a confusion today of your brazen. You're not type of in your face individual. You must really be a brave person. No, they were filled with boldness. With the boldness of the Spirit of God to proclaim the risen Lord. In Acts 5, the witness of the apostles concerning the risen Lord it continued, it spread they were not silenced the church must not be silenced and the apostles were not silenced and in verse 14 we read as a result of preaching the risen saviour that multitudes both of men and women were added unto the Lord and when there's blessing there will always be opposition and this increase in the multitude of the disciples it stirred up the indignation of the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees were sad because they denied the doctrine of the resurrection. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sadducees in particular denied any physical bodily resurrection. And so they orchestrated again that the apostles would be arrested and they were put into the common prison. We think today when someone is opposed in the open air for gospel preaching that that's a new thing. It's not a new thing. It goes right back to the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, right throughout the history of the persecuted church. Whilst in prison, the angel of the Lord came and visited them. And the door of the prison house was opened. And they were given direct instructions not to run away. That's the amazing thing. They were told to go to the center of the controversy in the temple. And there in the temple, the angel told them, go and preach the risen Lord. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? And obediently they left and they went to the temple early in the morning and they started to proclaim the risen Saviour. Now, of course, the Sadducees, the authorities in the, the city, quickly discovered that these men were no longer in the prison and Jerusalem really wasn't a big place. So they were quickly tracked down once again and they were read again before the council. And in verse 28, we read, 
that they said to the apostles, You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Would to God, would to God the church had such boldness that we could do the same again today. Fill this land with apostolic doctrine and with the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. But they went further because they realized that of this same Jesus whom they had condemned and given over to Pilate to put to death was really raised from the dead. Then they would be culpable for his murder. And they said to the apostles, do you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Are you saying that we killed him? Are you saying that we're culpable for the act? And so in answering their allegations, Peter once again defended the doctrine that he preached. And he emphasized what? The resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now would that the church today would learn again the lesson of apostolic history. The best defense of the Christian faith will always be the presentation of a risen and an exalted Lord. A risen and an exalted Lord. And on this Easter Sunday, I want to just follow in the footsteps of these apostles in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. And I want to consider with you today our risen, exalted Saviour. I, be I believe that this is our best plea before men and our only plea before a thrice holy God. What will we plea when we stand before him except we have a risen Saviour? We have no other plea. And what will we tell men? We have no other message other than Christ is risen. That's the message still of the Christian church. So what does this defense of Peter and the apostles teach us then about the risen and exalted Lord? Let's learn again about him. Well, first of all, it teaches us that the resurrection of Christ is part of his exaltation. The resurrection of Christ, it's part of the exaltation of Christ. Theologically, doctrinally, the resurrection of Christ is part of his state of exaltation. Christ's person as the God-man is executed in two estates. His estate of humiliation and then his estate of exaltation. And he had to pass through that estate of humiliation in order to enter into the estate of exaltation. He was humbled in that state of humiliation. In the incarnation, he was humbled. That the one who inhabited all eternity was confined, was confined and constrained to measure less than a span in the womb of the Virgin Mary. How humbling. That he who at one time and at all times filled all of eternity in his humanity was now in a human body. All of those truths are, are just amazing, staggering truths for Christians to consider. He was humbled in his lowly circumstances of life. Those wise men from the east, they came to the palace of Herod. Surely the king of the Jews will be born in the palace, but he was born in the stable. He didn't have royal garments. He wore the garments of the peasant. He didn't move in the corridors of power. Rather, he made humble furniture in the carpenter's workshop in the little town of Nazareth. 
He was humble. He was humbled in his death. He died amongst thieves. Crucified on that centre cross. He didn't even have a burial ground of his own. He had a borrowed tomb. And Peter contrasted his state of humiliation in this verse with that of his exaltation. Verse 30, we see Jesus killed. The word is murdered. They, they murdered him. Here was a preacher. He knew how to frame his words. He, he didn't hold back at all. You slew him. You hanged him on the tree. I can imagine him facing uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin, these mighty men that even had the life of the apostles in their hand, and he dared to confront them with their sin. He said, you did it. You, you murdered him. You put him on the tree. You hanged him. But now he's exalted. We see him in his lowly state of humiliation. But Peter said, God raised him from the dead. And he's now exalted. That word, the exaltation, just means he's elevated. He's lifted up. He's lifted up far and high above all. And he's at the highest place that heaven affords. Because he's at the right hand of God. That's why we sang this morning from Psalm 16. Remember, the Christ of the New Testament is the Messiah of the Old Testament. And in Psalm 16 and verse 8, we read, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And this was the very scripture that Peter expounded the great resurrection truth from in Acts chapter 2 and verse 25. Acts 2 and verse 25, we read, he, he said, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. He, he's showing the Sanhedrin again as a state of humiliation, but he's passed through that state. He, he's no longer in that state anymore. He's in his state of exaltation. He's the risen, he's the exalted, he's the glorified Lord. That's the one in whose presence we are today. Paul took this up and it's elaborated right throughout the, the, the epistles in the New Testament. In Hebrews 1 and 3 we read, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because the work is finished. Nobody could sit in the presence of kings or princes, but this prince, this king, had finished the work. He sat down, the work was finished. Uh, there's a deliberate contrast here between these two estates, verse 31 and verse 30. And he was reminding, Peter was reminding the Sanhedrin, there's a higher authority. All of your puny restrictions, all of your malice, all of your hatred against the Christ of God, they are as nothing. You are before the risen, exalted Son of God who's at the right hand of the Most High God today. Here we are in this little church building here in Annalong, met together on this, this Easter Sunday. We know so many of you and uh, we all know each other so very well. But we're not just before each other today. We're before the risen, exalted Lord. He's in the midst. 
He sees our every move. He sees our every action. He knows our every thought. Oh, how awesome it is. How awesome it is like Jacob of old to be in the house of God, the place called Bethel. How awesome it is to be here. The exaltation of Christ, brethren and sisters, it's an essential part of redemption, which Christ had to complete. And in this exalted state, he continues that high priestly work. And he's working in the church. And and one day, this body, this invisible body comprised of all of his people, from the north, from the south, from the east of the west, he is going to present us collectively perfect before the Father. You look into the church today, north, south, east and west, and you can look wherever you want to look, but you'll not find perfection. But on that day, he'll present us perfect, complete and whole before the Father. That's his work. John Brown in his wonderful body of divinity, he reminds us that betwixt the death and the resurrection of the Savior, his humiliation and his exaltation were conjoined. His humiliation continued in his bodies lying in the grave under the power of death and in the breach of the union between his soul and body. And his exaltation began in the happiness of this separated soul in the heavenly mansions. Visualize it. At death, the soul of Christ went to paradise whilst his body was on the cross and taken down and put in the tomb. We, we said together the Apostles' Creed today. I, I love all of these ancient creeds and confessions. They unite us with the church of bygone generations. And we've considered the creed here many times in the days that have passed. But much has been made of that phrase in the creed where it says he descended into hell. And the reality of that source and even the meaning of those words I believe has been lost in the intervening years. In Acts 2.27, when Peter applied the words of Psalm 16 and 10, you can compare them at home, Psalm 16 and 10, and Acts 2.27, I believe it's very evident that when uh, he's speaking of hell, it is a reference to the grave. His soul was in paradise with God, but his body lay in the grave. The Hebrew word, sheol. This was the interim period where he was held under the power of death. And most reformed theologians interpret this part of the Apostles' Creed to refer to the pains of hell, the torments of hell, the punishment of hell that Christ bore on the center cross in his physical body and in his soul for his beloved church. Oh, we we stand before the Saviour today. He's not in that grave. And he's not on that cross. He's at the highest throne of the Most High. And he's ruling and he's interceding. And he's governing and he's protecting his church. And he's bringing all things to completion. And to that great final day when the trumpet will sound. And when when he's coming back again for that great resurrection day. There are some wonderful truths concerning the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. He rose in the same body which he had before the crucifixion. 
Luke 24, 39. That tells us how we're going to rise, doesn't it? We're going to have the same body, but it's going to be a glorified body. Will we know each other in heaven? Yes, we will. We'll know each other over there. He rose early in the morning. Because why? He was the day spring from on high. He rose on the third day. He rose with great deliberation to, to prove its, its literalness. He, he was literally the risen Christ of God. That's why on that lovely passage in John 20 verse 5 to 7. He, he went to such great extremes to prove it is I. It is I. It was great, it was great solemnity. The whole resurrection was accompanied by earthquakes. It was accompanied by saints rising from the grave and appearing to other people around Jerusalem. He rose as a public person. Why? Because he represented you and I as his people. He rose to a state of everlasting life and happiness. And all of those shadows, they teach us how you and I likewise will rise from the dead. There is an exalted Lord he looks in mercy upon us today. He's one of our number. He's in our midst. When we sing those little hymns, you know, you should know the truth of them. When we say, Jesus, stand amongst us in all thy risen power, and let this time of worship be a blessed hallowed hour. He's the risen, exalted, glorified Lord. He's in the midst. Secondly, the exalted Saviour's position will consider at God's right hand. He has been exalted to a position of being a prince and a saviour. A prince and a saviour. Now this did not mean he was not a prince and a saviour before the resurrection. Herman Bovnik, that great Dutch reformed theologian, I was interested to read what he wrote on this. He said the difference was before the resurrection, he was the Messiah in the form of a servant and his identity was concealed. But after the resurrection, he laid aside the form of a servant and he reassumed the glory which he had with the Father before the world was in answer to his great high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 1 to 3. Now, as you read through the rest of the New Testament from the Gospels, you will find that in the New Testament epistles, the apostles no longer referred to the Messiah by his historical name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. The name Jesus was a very common name in the, in the days of his earthly ministry. There were many who were called by Jesus because the Jesus of the New Testament was the Joshua from the Old Testament. So there would have been many who had been called Jesus, even Emmanuel, in the New Testament days. But it changed. Now they spoke of him as Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the transliteration of the Old Testament of the Messiah. He is Jesus Christ. He is Jesus the Messiah. Or... The longer variation of it is, he is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Lord Jesus Christ. So this messianic designation of Jesus Christ, our Christ Jesus, or our Lord Jesus Christ, came to be the preeminent name and usage throughout the New Testament churches. So the name of the Lord is constantly connected with Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus in 
the New Testament. And there's a deep significance, of course, in all of that. In the names of Jehovah and Adonai in the Old Testament, as we find their equivalent in the word Lord or Curios in the New Testament, and we're speaking of Christ. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Lord of the New Testament. We're on hallowed ground. There is an exalted Lord. Yes, he is Jesus. But we know him today in his full title. He is the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is him in his full orbed glory. Yes, we know him as Jesus. It's wonderful to take the name of Jesus with you. But when we use his full designation, the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize him and we own him and we worship him in his full exalted state. That's who we are before today. The apostles saw more and more the glory of the risen exalted Lord. Hear that bold confession of doubting Thomas. In John's Gospel, chapter 20, 28, he fell down before him a week after the resurrection and he said, My Lord and my God. In our text, they confessed him as a prince and a saviour at God's right hand. Here we have the sovereign ruler, a prince. A sovereign. This is messianic language concerning Christ. He is the prince. Remember those lovely words in Isaiah chapter 9 and 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Now consider all the titles. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Who's this? Now we meet in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. It's the same person as Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He's the prince, the prince of peace. This whole idea of royalty introduced very early on in the nativity of Christ. We read in Luke 1, 31, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, the angel to Mary, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he shall be great, and he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Here he was of the lineage of the household of David, that royal household. Here was the prince whose reign would be forever and ever and ever and ever. But now Peter charged these same men. Acts three fifteen. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead. He's the prince. Here we have a wonderful picture of the heavenly position and power and prestige of our heavenly, royal, exalted prince. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. All the world's superpowers, they, they think they have power. And oh, they're, they're so... Uh, inflamed and they're so puffed up with their power but they have no power Jesus said that to Pilate you have no power except it was given unto you the very man who was condemning him to death he said you have no power except it was given unto you 
And even the kings of the earth today, they have no power but what Almighty God gives unto them and permits them to exercise. And Peter looked at that Sanhedrin eyeball to eyeball and said, you took him, you hung him on a tree. You killed the prince of life, but God raised him up. He's Lord. He's Lord in all of his church. That's why this text, we'll put it up at the back of the pulpit here. Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. I remember that opening sermon that I preached here the Sunday after this building was opened. He's Lord of everything that goes on within these four walls. He's Lord of all. If he doesn't give us the say-so, we can't do it. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of his church. He's Lord of all creation. And yet with all he bends his ear to listen to those who call upon his name. The text I was brought to the Lord through was Acts chapter 2 and verse 31. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. We read in Romans 10 verse 12, 13. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Now every Jewish individual who have been listening to that because they were brought up for centuries to believe there's a world of difference now in these New Testament times Paul said there's no difference for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him let me put it to you today have you called upon this exalted glorified Lord for mercy and salvation that's the question you don't have to call upon me you don't have to call upon the church. But you do have to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Will he hear you? Though he is exalted. Though he is on the eternal throne. Though he reigns forever and ever. Though he's the king of the princes of this world. He bends his ear to listen to the sinner's cry. Because we read in verse 12. Or verse 13 of Romans 10. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. His exalted position includes also this great truth. Not only is he a sovereign ruler, he's the sole redeemer. He's saviour. He's saviour. Again, this is a very apostolic title that's given to the Lord Jesus Christ. In our King James authorised version, this Word saviour is found 24 times in the English translation. Only three of them are found in the Gospels. Isn't that amazing? Only three of them are found in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is the source of salvation. He's the great sacrifice that bought salvation. And through his redemptive work, salvation is offered free to all. He is that sovereign ruler, but he's the sole redeemer. If you're going to be saved and meet him, prepared. Imagine one day you're going to meet him. You're going to stand before his throne. And how will you stand before his throne if you don't have on his garments of salvation? Today he's ready to meet with you. He's ready to impart to you those garments of salvation. These two titles, they go together. A sinner's we have to take the Lord Jesus Christ as our sovereign ruler. He's Lord. But we also have to take him as our personal saviour. 
as lordship on salvation. He can't be your saviour unless he's your lord. There are many people today and they say, oh, I'm saved. But there's nothing in their life to say they're saved. Are they under his lordship? No, they're not under his lordship. The two titles go together. He's a prince, he's a saviour. He's the ruler, he's the redeemer. Let me ask you today, is he your Lord? Is he your saviour? Peter said, Acts 4 and 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I want to emphasize that today, this Resurrection Sunday. You must be saved. And the only way you can be saved is through trusting Christ as your Lord and as your Saviour. Thirdly, could we conclude by considering with you the presence or the gifts which he bestows as the risen, exalted Lord. Why was he exalted? For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's a giving saviour. He was exalted in order to give the gifts, the gifts, the graces of repentance and forgiveness. Now we know that the Bible teaches us that repentance is the fruit of regeneration. It's the new birth. It's the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only commences repentance, the Holy Spirit brings repentance to its ultimate conclusion and fruition. It's the work of God, the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to turn the rebel from their sin, from their rebellion, unto God, and to work repentance in the rebel's heart and in the rebel's life. I, I think we need to be careful when we talk about repentance. Because a difference in every individual who comes to the Lord, the measure of repentance, the repentance of Manasseh, that evil, wicked king, who was taken into captivity. It was very different from the repentance of Timothy, brought up in a godly home, brought up under the scriptures. The repentance of David was quite different from that of John. And there are many comparisons that have been drawn. In recent weeks here in the congregation, it's been such a blessing to meet with some young boys and parents who have told me that their children have come to the Lord. Just as little children. I'm glad Jesus saves little children. He brings them to himself. He works his grace in their hearts and in their lives. But their repentance is very different from a a, a young man told me his testimony this week. He was converted on a bus that was bringing him back from a nightclub. Two very different stories. And sometimes... Uh, people bring along others to testify in meetings and, and people give this dramatic testimony how they were saved doing whatever. And then everybody who comes in the congregation, they think that must be the measure of repentance. I have to go to that depths in order to repent. No, no, you don't. You repent today. You repent today. This word, according to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, it means a change of heart. Sinners need to change their their mind about a lot of things. They they need to change their mind about themselves. They need to see that they I, I am the sinner. I am someone who before the throne of God and in the light of the law of God is condemned for all eternity. It's not until you see it like that that you will repent and turn from your sin. 
Repentance is not only changing how you see yourself, it's, it is changing your mind how you see God. He's a thrice holy God. We stand in the presence of holiness. Absolute, pure, perfect holiness. And yet, in the person of his son, he comes to visit needy sinners and needy hearts. What a wonderful message is the gospel. In repentance, the the whole person is involved. The heart is smitten. The mind is changed. The will is completely changed. And in the light of what I know about myself, in the light of what I know about God, and in the light of what I know about his mercy and his grace, I turn unto God seeking his pardon and his grace. You know, when anybody does that, they've received the gift of repentance. Go back to the old catechism again. What is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace. It's not something that I merit. It's not something that I work up. It's a saving grace. Whereby a sinner out of a true sense of a sin. An apprehension of the mercy of God and Christ. Doth with grief and hatred of a sin. Turn from it unto God. With full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. He was, he, he was raised from the dead. He was exalted to God's right hand so that he might give the gift, the present of repentance. Have you repented today? Have you turned from your sin unto God? Young or old, can you tell me of the time, the place, the moment, the experience, that part in your life where you turned unto God? It tells us here, The gift of repentance and forgiveness. Now the two go together. There's no forgiveness without repentance. The greatest treasure that any individual can have is to say their sins are forgiven. Not a wonderful thing. There are people today, I'm sure you've followed it too on the BBC News, out in the Philippines. There are whole groups of people, men, go through that physical act of crucifixion. They actually crucify them on a cross in order to obtain forgiveness. They have to reenact. They believe what Jesus did for them. No, you don't have to reenact it. You don't have to do it. He has given it. Given it freely. That's his exalted gift to lowly sinners. The gift of repentance unforgiveness but if you haven't repented you can never be forgiven what a solemn thought this Easter Sunday and yet what a blessed thought we rejoice in a crucified and a risen saviour we rejoice today in the one who's the the prince of kings that's how the bible describes him who was dead and who now is alive forevermore And in virtue of his resurrection, he's exalted to be a prince and a saviour in order to give repentance and forgiveness and to put all things under his feet. He's our confidence today. He's our hope today. We have reaffirmed our faith and even just reading together the ancient Apostles' Creed. Let's reaffirm our faith in what the Bible reveals to us about him. Our risen, exalted, Prince.